Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. For those of you who are new to the podcast, you can enhance your experience by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. There, you will find six different levels of subscription, which could include two new podcast series, a monthly bulletin, group and personal Zoom meetings, articles about conductors and the art of conducting, mini-episodes attached to this series, and even the chance to have some conducting lessons from myself. The details are in the show notes below, and it would be lovely to see some of you join our ever-growing supporters club. Today, I conduct a conversation with the first Australian conductor to appear on this podcast, probably the most famous Australian conductor conducting today. She's had a truly international career, working all across the globe, including becoming Chief Conductor and Chief Executive at the Hamburg State Opera, and soon she'll be returning home to start as Chief Conductor with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in 2022. It's a great pleasure to welcome Simone Young. Simone, how lovely to see you and speak with you today. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, thanks. I'm uh, coping with being stuck in a hotel room in quarantine in Sydney. It's my second bout of hotel quarantine and I've done two stints of quarantine back in the UK. So I'm getting quite used to this. So how long long have you been stuck in this particular hotel room and how long have you got to go? I've got three nights and three full days to go. They'll let me out late on Monday. Um, So, yes, through the worst of it, I have, we do another, tomorrow's day 12, they do another um, COVID PCR test tomorrow. And then when that comes back clear on Sunday, then we get our release papers. (laughs) But it's, um, yeah. It's, it really is no fun, you know. Sydney hotels are not built for people to spend 24-7 mm. in their hotel rooms. Um, so the windows don't open and they're designed to maximise the effectiveness of the air conditioning. Yeah. Um, and frankly, being locked in a room for 14 days with no window that you can open is a little daunting. Mm. But there, I'm nearly through it. Well, it means I've got a captive audience, um, which is not a bad (laughs) thing, Um, which means I can go right back to the beginning and find out what were your first earliest musical experiences? Did you come from a musical family? What was your first instrument? How did it come about? Yeah, no, I'm I'm the black sheep of the family, very definitely. I'm the only musician. Um, My grandmother had a piano in in the front room, as was often the case, and... um, so that, that was really my first experiences. We didn't, and, and the radio, we didn't even have a record player until I was 12. Um, so piano was very much my first instrument. Um, I started on a, a paper keyboard, you know, one of those fold-out cardboard keyboards mm. until it was indicated it wasn't just a passing phase. I did, this was something I wanted to continue with, and then we got a piano, yeah. which is now with me in Sussex. It has travelled the world with me, that little piano, and my granddaughters hammer away on it. That's that's the one they're allowed to play. (laughs) They're not allowed to touch Nana's Steinway. (laughs) (laughs) And so going through your teenage years and whatever else, the piano was your thing. You didn't play any other instruments, uh, orchestral instruments? I did. I I was a flautist as well. Um, and but my big thing in my teenage years was composition. I mm. was um, I studied composition while I was still in high school. I, ha- I was on scholarship to go to the conservatory to study composition. 
and um, that was really my big thing, big thing. But I mean, we're talking the late seventies, and um, the the uh, when I started my musical studies at the conservatorium in Sydney, it was as a composition major. But this was the time of heavy duty serialism, and mm. the I mean, electronic music was still all analog and reel to reel tape splicing and things. Um, it was fascinating stuff, and I'm very grateful for having had a, a compositional training, but I very quickly learned that what I really loved was making music with other people, <laughs> um, not sitting in a room for long hours by myself. What I didn't realise, of course, is as a conductor, you do spend many a long <laughs> hour sitting in a room by yourself studying scores, but, hey, that's how it is. <laughs> you certainly do. I mean... Uh, as, um, as your biog says that you've studied piano composition and conducting at the Sydney Conservatorium, I can't say that word, Sydney Conservatorium well, of it, Music. It, it should, um, <laughs> yeah, it should say I studied conducting because I've actually never had a conducting lesson in my life. Oh, well, you just uh, answered my lie. next I question. One, <laughs> one conducting lesson. Yeah. There was, uh, I was, I did a postgraduate diploma in repetiteur studies at yeah. the conservatorium. I, I was, I was the kind of student that everybody hates. You know, I dropped out after first year because it didn't move fast enough. And then I, I was a autodidact and did a number of diplomas from the UK by extension study. And then went back as a postgraduate student, cutting the whole process short by a couple of years. Mm. Um, and as a repetiteur, I was in, entitled to some conducting training mm. but again we're talking 1981 um it was just not considered that i would be even remotely interested um and so you know most of my all in fact really all, all my conducting training has been as working as a conductor's assistant mm. to various people I started working as a repetiteur with Opera Australia in Sydney already at the age of 22. And it was an exciting time in Sydney. Charlie McCarris was there every year um, doing Janacek, doing Wagner in concert. Um, Carlo Felice Celario, wonderful old Argentinian conductor who had grown up in Italy and had, you know, played under Sabata and, and Seraphine and conducted 300 Toscas in his life all over the world. He was there doing all the Italian repertoire. And uh, Richard Bonning, of course, was doing all the early bel canto with Sutherland and mm. doing all the French romantic repertoire. So, you know, it was an extraordinary time to be a young pianist. And, of course, I, I just soaked all this stuff up. Yeah, I mean, interesting that you said that you'd, you you'd only had one lesson before that. Um, so what were you getting from these early experiences as repetitor? Because obviously your job as a repetitor, for those who don't know who listen to the podcast, is really to be uh, there playing the piano for classes that maybe the conductor's taking on, on you know, with the singers, or maybe you're giving them training on your own, um, but you're not really moving your arms around in a conducting way yet. Um, so I would imagine it's those times where you're sitting with Charlie McCarris in a room and with the major singing talent that you're watching and you're maybe absorbing what he's doing with his hands and arms and rehearsal techniques and things. Yeah, I mean, the, the role of a repetiteur is really fascinating one because it covers a great many areas, exactly all those things you've mentioned, but also you have the job of basically replacing the orchestra for yeah. weeks on end 
in production rehearsals. So, you know, for weeks on end, you're playing all these extraordinary scores, but as orchestral reductions, you're not trying to play them like a Beethoven sonata or a Chopin etude. You have to actually make the orchestral sound, which means you spend a lot of time studying orchestral scores. Mm. Um, and then you are the conductor's extra pair of ears once they start rehearsing with the orchestra. You're the one sitting out in the house, listening to the balance with the stage, um, picking up stray printing errors, you know, just generally being an extra pair of ears. And it's kind of the old fashioned way to become a conductor. Yeah. It's very interesting because in my generation, um, you know, Tielemann, Papano, Luisi, Ranicles, myself, uh, we all did our years as assistants and as pianists mm. and, um, it was very much the way conductors in the back in the 60s also came to the podium mm. through the opera houses. So in Australia at the time, just as um, I believe in the UK, there was a very active and very um, extremely good um, amateur pro-am musical circuit. Mm. And so that was where I got my first experience as a conductor because they just needed someone on hand who could train the chorus and then, you know, conduct the rehearsals while you played with one hand and conducted with the other. And, you know, it, it was a fantastic training. And it was actually through doing that and doing some Sondheim and talking about Sondheim with Richard Bonning, who is also a big Sondheim fan, that um, it came about that he became interested in what I was doing and, and got me to do some rehearsing with the orchestra. And that was sort of how it all started. Well, you're the first person really, other than myself, to have talked about working with amateurs. Most of the conductors maybe dabbled in it a little bit, but we've not really talked about it. And, and I definitely think it's a good thing to do at that stage of your career you know to absorb as much as possible you learn to fix problems in in you know very early on because you have to fix them you know a lot of these problems yeah. don't yeah don't exist in a professional orchestra so you 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 have to learn to pick up how where the problems are and how to fix them um uh, you know some conductors just don't conduct amateurs or never have what do you think it's a good yeah. thing i do but do you i think it's great thing to do at the start yeah and I think it's um you know conducting amateurs is different to conducting students mm. um and in my in the days when I was doing it the orchestras were a, a real mix the sort of show bands you know we're talking Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> and Lehar and but also Sondheim and Rogers and Hammerstein and the the bands were very much a mix of sort of really competent amateurs who'd been playing this stuff for 30 years around the traps and students who were picking up a bit of extra cash this way yeah um and so you know you had to as a it was great you learned a lot of very practical solutions it was where, as a non-string player, I first learned about Boeings. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, this is practical grounding that if you don't grow up in that kind of milieu... Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. How are you going to get that kind of experience? I, I think it's highly recommended. And most of my colleagues, most of my Australian colleagues who were in the UK in the 80s and 90s, we'd all first met when we were, you know 
doing stuff with the Rockdale Light Opera Company and the, <laughs> the Lane Cove Light Opera Company or the McKellar Theatrical Society, you know. Quite quite a stellar alumni some of these places have yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. You eventually, I mean, you do become a resident conductor at the Opera Australia, but eventually you come to Europe and there are three major things on there. You're assistant to James Conlon. You also become assistant to Baron Boehm at Berlin and Bayreuth. But also you, you go into the Kapellmeister system, which is something I spoke to Kevin John Edgesley about, which is mm. you know, very similar to what you were already doing in Australia with the repetiteuring and then assisting the main conductor and then starting to get your own... Um, your own performances or your own actual productions. Um, of those three things, you know, of, we're st- you know, of this stage of your career, you're still being a sponge, absorbing all material, all wisdom from anybody. Which of those do you think was the most important? Was it get, becoming a Kapellmeister at Cologne Opera and seeing how the European system works from within? Or was it just being around somebody like Daniel Barenboim at Berlin and Bayreuth and and feeding off an amazing mind like that? Well, I think, frankly, the one wouldn't have been possible without the other. Right. You know, when I I first went to Germany, I was 25 years old. I was from a country where the Germans knew about our sports people. They didn't know too much (laughs) about our artists. Yeah. Um, And let's face it, I was a girl. And we're talking the mid eighties. There just wasn't anybody else out there. Um, And so it was my very solid facility as a repetitor, also with languages, all that side of thing. And of course the compositional background, studying scores, correcting parts, um, being just being a very capable music all rounder made me, quite indispensable very quickly Mm. and the first job you usually get um, as a young repetitor that has anything to do with conducting I mean it being Germany of course it's all established in different classes of activity so the Mm. first your first contract is repetitor mit dirigierverpflichtung (laughs) which means you're you're a repetitor with the um with the duty to conduct where necessary which basically means that you get to conduct lots and lots of offstage stuff and they don't have to pay you any extra for it it's in your contract (laughs) oh thanks yeah some Um, of the hardest things we ever have to do is conduct offstage i mean i've done it it's frightening yeah (laughs) it's it's fiendishly difficult and it's it's um it's seriously important to do it's a very if you're going to do a lot of opera it's very important to have been on the other side of it as well Mm. and because of that and the contact with the musicians then the next step is um uh, musikalischer assistent und kapellmeister so that Mm. was my next contract and that was then for the following four years and uh, the deal with Conlon was that as long as I didn't neglect his operas, I ended up doing, you know, 50 performances a year in the Cologne Opera, mm. which meant that by the time I went to work with Barenboim in Bayreuth was 1991. I was now 30. I had six years of solid conducting um, experience at high level with high level orchestras and singers behind me already 
Um, and I came in uh, to Bayreuth to work with Daniel as Tony Papano's replacement. Tony had gone <laughs> off to be yeah. music director in Oslo, and um, so Danny was short a pianist. And um, so I came in to do that ring cycle and, of course, had all the experience behind me. And um, Barenboim recognized that. And the next thing, I had a contract in with the same title in Berlin. That was from 93 to 95. But whereas Kapellmeister, you would normally get the Zauberflöters and the Hensel and Gretels and the Barbara Sevilles and the Carmens and so on. In Berlin, I was conducting... Siegfried, Tosca, Meistersega, Elektra, Zalame, I mean, I, all the first repertoire. Yeah. And so, you know, that was a tremendous opportunity yeah. at that stage of my career. And that was, that was really 93. That was really when all the, that was when I first debuted in Vienna. That was a year later in London, a year after that at the Met and Munich. And that was when it all sort of took off. Mm. Well, what a wonderful journey. And, you know, that system seems to work. The names that were, the, you know, the people you're replacing, you know, are all names that then go out off and have stellar careers. Mm. We haven't looked at any symphonic work. And as I said to Kevin John Edusay, that this opera system seems to form either the Kapellmeister system or the repetitor system, wherever you may be, in your case in Australia, seems to form ready-made conductors who then suddenly appear on the symphonic stage so to speak and and if you're like me if you're totally you know I only ever played in one orchestra in my entire career for 22 years and, and didn't know an awful lot about who was conducting where in the opera world you just suddenly seem to have appeared appeared from nowhere you know on the symphonic yeah. world everybody goes who's this person oh they're 32 where have they been well actually they've been working bloody hard in the opera system but you do appear on the symphonic system and principal guest with Gulbenkian and then your first principal conductor job in in Bergen um some conductors on previous episodes have said that it's a really nice release to suddenly go and do two weeks of of symphonic work with two separate programs, having bit spent eight weeks on a production. Um, did you enjoy that change of pace? It's completely different. Yeah. I mean, it, they, they are two quite different disciplines that are, that are obviously closely related. Mm. But um, yes, I mean, I, I took the job in Bergen because as you say, I sort of suddenly appeared on the symphonic scene in around 95, 96, in the strange situation where I was already conducting all the major Wagner and Strauss works in places like Vienna and Berlin, mm. um, and yet was conducting a Brahms symphony for the first time. Mm. And I had a good look at this and, you know, found myself conducting my first Vorjak 9 with Munich Philharmonic and so on. And so they thought, no, I want to go and spend a few weeks a year just working my way through the symphonic repertoire with yeah. a good orchestra, but somewhere that's not exactly um, on the on the mainstream circuit. Yeah. And they were they were very valuable years in Bergen and um, then stood me in very good stead because in three years that was 40 concert programs. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot going to be a lot of music and uh, an yeah. orchestra that's greatly loved. I mean, I've spoken to, I'm assuming my dates are right. I have spoken already to the two people who then followed you, uh, Andrew Litton and Ed Gardner, and they really yeah. love Bergen and, and love the orchestra. Um, I would imagine that was a great place. 
It's a fabulous city. Um, mm. I mean, they'll be the first to tell you that the weather is ghastly. Mm. But in fact, the, the very fact that the weather is ghastly is probably what protects the city from being completely overwhelmed by tourism because it's very beautiful. <laughs> um, and the orchestra is extremely fine. Yeah. There, there is a, a very, very high caliber, particularly of string playing um, in Norway in particular, but in Scandinavia in general. Mm. And... Um, that was what I noticed first up. The first program I did with them was Beethoven 8 and Kinder Tortenlieder as part of their festival. And I just immediately sort of thought, wow, where's yeah. this sound? You know, why don't I know about this orchestra? And, you know, it's a, it's a little city. It's got, even when the university's full on, it's barely 250,000 people, <laughs> but with this fantastic orchestra. So and a love and a very fine concert hall. You know yeah. the two kind of go hand in hand. Often. Yes, that's true. But now Andrew said exactly the same. He woke up the that first morning, opened the curtains. It was you know raining, grey, miserable. Thought, what am I doing here? Why has my career brought me to yeah. this place? Put the first beat down in Shostakovich Five, and, and he said I almost fell over because of the string sound that exactly. came out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. what a great place to sort of learn all of that symphonic repertoire. Um, not long into your time there, you become chief conductor back home at Opera Australia. At Opera Australia, yes. Yeah. At the time, um, as a, a friend uh, conductor, Michael Border, rang me and said, I know what I'm giving you for Christmas next year, this year. It's a globe. What the <laughs> hell do you think you're doing? Bergen and Sydney. You know, you couldn't get to places that are further away. I racked up the, um, the air miles yeah. for those three years. I bet I bet you did. Uh, I mean, it was going to be a question anyway, sort of leading on from what uh, Andrew Litton was talking about, because he was doing Dallas and Bergen for a while. Mm. Um, you know, uh, as your career goes on, you know, basically because of the fact that you're Australian and you you still have ties, and now, you know, you're, you're soon to start as chief of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in 2022. You're going to rack up the miles, which means you you as a conductor need some sort of strategy. So do you insist on a day off to get over jet lag, uh, or do you, you know, how do you cope with it, with the with the travelling element of what we have to do, all of that sort of thing? Because you know, I mean, I know at the moment none of us are travelling very much at all. Uh, you, you know, you're one of the lucky. You're, you're obviously gone back to do some work, and you're stuck in your hotel room. Mm -hmm. But what what is your strategy normally for that? Do you insist on some time off, or or do you, with your manager, talk very much about your schedule? We do look at the schedule very closely, and I do these days, certainly since Hamburg. I mean, the 10 years in Hamburg was something, and I, I, we'll talk yeah. about that in a sec. Yeah, but yeah. since Hamburg, um, I've been based in Sussex in the UK. That's the, where the family home is, and my daughters both live in the UK, yeah. one in Birmingham and one in London. So the UK has very much been my base. Um, and we do try to make the traveling make sense, you know, so that there aren't three trips to the States in a season that we mm. sort of can put the concert engagements together in a, over, you know, four weeks over a six week period sort of thing. Mm. I find I'm getting worse with jet lag as I get older. So I'm trying to, uh, I try to put in buffers Sometimes it's just not possible because of the different um, planning cycles of different organizations. You know, opera companies right. plan a long way in advance. 
I've got opera bookings into 2024, long before symphony orchestras or let alone festivals are even thinking about what they're planning. And for somebody like myself who, who has this big opera repertoire, um, I have to also choose very carefully which projects I do because operas take such a big slab of time. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I have a couple of houses that I feel very connected to and I try to go there every year. And then, you know, every now and then somewhere new joins the mix. But uh, yes, I don't, I, I try to give myself a bit more space. I mean, I used to be quite, I, I am a workaholic, there's no doubt about it. And I generally am pretty fit and can just sort of push myself through these things. Mm. But yes, I do try to put a bit more of a buffer in place. And <laughs> at the moment, as you say, at the moment, it's insane, particularly with travel to, to and from Australia. And I still have my 96-year-old mother is living here. So that's another reason that brings me back. Yes. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. You have to build in uh, 16 days between your European engagement and the beginning of rehearsals in Sydney because it takes you two days to get here and then you've got to quarantine for 14 days. That's right. And I don't think that's going to change in 2021. Mm. And now the UK is adding the, you know, the quarantine regulations are getting tougher in the UK. This year just gets harder and harder. You keep looking at at the calendar and to think, well, that worked fine when we made that <laughs> plan. It doesn't yeah. work anymore. Um, but yeah, that's one of that's one of the hardest things. And I have I have one manager for the whole world except Australia and New Zealand, where I it's where I started. I'm still with the same management agency, though it's under a different head agent now um, from when I started. But I've been with them since I was you know, 22 or 23. And then um, my European American Asian uh, agent is in Vienna. Mm. And of course, they're a little in competition with one another, you know, doesn't want me to spend too much time in Australia, but he's had enough to do with Australian artists to know that we're very attached to our home countries. Mm. Um, don't stand in our way or one of these days, we <laughs> might just throw up a hand and say it's too hard and, and just go home for good. So. <laughs> you mentioned it earlier on. Hamburg was going to be my next question. And again, it's a question to do with time. Uh, time management. In previous episodes, mm. I've spoken to Jack Van Steen and Kirill Karabitz, who actually both had the same job in Weimar as GMD, or General Music Director for the non-German speaking audiences. You basically had that job in Hamburg for 10 years. You were um, Chief Conductor, or, or Chief Executive Hamburg State Opera, and the Chief Conductor of the Hamburg Philharmonic at the same time. Was that similar in the fact that both Jack and Kirill said, they were shocked at how much time they spent in meetings and not actually doing any music making. Um, how was that well, for you? It's slightly different from being a game day in a, in, in a place like Weimar. Yes, my job was even crazier in that right. I was um, as I was intendant of the right. opera, which is kind of artistic director and and most of the responsibilities of a CEO. Yeah as well as being music director. Yeah. So um, I was 
responsible for the budget and the artistic planning of the entire organization. Yeah, Hamburg State Opera is a huge organization. We do 250 main stage performances a year mm. and numerous others on smaller stages. Um, the ballet tours, John Neumeyer is the long serving director of the ballet and choreographer for the ballet there. And he and I and Detlev Meyer Johan was our business director. The three of us were basically then the, the triumvirate executive. Mm. But um, if you think the opera basically is more or less two thirds of the activities and the ballet one third. So it was a huge huge job and it was um that was seven days a week for 10 years and <laughs> most days 14 hour days um i found the performing was always the thing that was the most enjoyable yeah because you would leave everything else behind you and um walk into the pit and and be a musician again mm. I, th I think it was very important to do because particularly it made sense after all my years in the operatic world to be in the position where I was not only in responsible for the music, I was selecting the directors and the creative teams and choosing the repertoire, planning the repertoire for the entire house for 10 years. Um, but I, I, I'm sure you're getting the picture. That's a massive <laughs> yeah, job. It certainly um, is. <laughs> I mean, my hat goes off that you lasted 10 years, really. People choose to do that. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I think the last person in Germany who did that was Savalish yeah. in Munich. Yeah. Um, yes. And I had a good team, of course. Without a good team, it would not have been possible. But uh, yeah, they were 10 very intense, but very also very fruitful years and made me, I think, a much stronger artist. I, I actually have, this is being ever so slightly um, provocative <laughs> in a thing, but I do think every, every music director should spend at least one year having to be responsible for the budget mm. so that they understand that when they stamp up and down and say, no, I must have that extra rehearsal, they understand that that 40,000 euros has got to come out from somewhere else. And what is going to go is that the extra singer in the ensemble, is that the extra coach on the staff, is that the new lighting rig that the technical department are screaming for? You know, what are you balancing up? And I think that's very important because we can become a little blinkered mm. in the industry and only see our particular square yard I don't think that's provocative at all. I think that's a, a very fair comment and one that I think you're right. I mean, you know, you hear stories about, you know, I'm only coming to your orchestra if you'll let me conduct Marla 2. Well, you know, Marla 2 is not cheap to put on. Um, you no. know, and, and exactly as you said, I will only come if I have so many rehearsals. Well, you know, we can't afford those rehearsals. Uh, and I think, you know, whether you're guesting or whether you're a music director or a chief conductor somewhere, you know, having a knowledge of how an orchestra runs is is paramount. I mean... I got it. I got it through being on artistic committees and, and committees as a player. You know, you you get to hear about how budgets work and you know why we can't all have a ten percent pay rise every year and all of that sort of stuff. So you, I got to hear about it from that angle. But I think some conductors could benefit from, as you say, doing it. And it's certainly not something that musicians of from any field, orchestral musicians, pianists, singers. It's not something that 
we study at any time. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not part of any part of the training. Yeah. Um, and I do think these days that, or very soon, some music colleges are already doing it, but I think many music colleges are going to have to introduce IT streams so that musicians are more technically savvy. They're going to have to introduce um, accounting and budgeting schemes yeah. and um, training in writing funding proposals and all of that sort of thing, because that is a big part of your professional life. Mm. Um, that's just part of the reality of being a musician in 2021. At this point, I asked Simone about her teaching role she'd had in Hamburg and what her approach to teaching conducting actually is. Her answer to this question and the following discussion we had about the whole world of teaching conducting has been made into a Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episode. To access that 15-minute discussion, as well as all of the other previous Patreon-exclusive mini-episodes, just open up the details attached below, go to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, and subscribe today. It's very quick and easy, and for as little as £5 a month, you get access to a whole new set of content, all associated with this podcast. Now, back to our interview and the question that every conductor has been asked. A question that every conductor has asked, and you should be no different, and music lovers are interested in this, but also the conducting geeks and students. When you come to learn a new piece or study a new piece, it could even be an old favourite, do you have a system? Yeah. Do you sit at the piano or do you just sit at your desk in silence? Do you work from page one to the end or do you start big and then zone in on things? And are you a marker-upper, a scribbler of things in your scores, or are you one of these who the pencil is not allowed anywhere near those white pages? Because, conduct, <laughs> as, as you can imagine, I think you're about the 68th or 69th conductor I've spoken to, everybody's answer is different and it proves that we're all different. But how do you go about it? Sure. Well, I'm very definitely a scribbler. Mm. For me, my, my score is a roadmap. Yeah. And I'm very fortunate to have perfect pitch. I can read a score and hear it in my head so I don't need to have access to a piano. Right. Um, which, when the schedule's tight, is very useful because it means studying on a plane or whatever. It's all, it's all possible and it's not a problem. Mm. Um, that being said, at, at my stage, you know, I'm going to be 60 in a few weeks. I've been doing this job for a very long time. It'll, it'll be 40 years relatively soon. Mm. Um, unless it's a contemporary work, there's not a whole lot of repertoire that I approach that is new in yeah. the sense of being totally unfamiliar. Mm. Um, I, I, I liken it perhaps to a, a Shakespearean actor who has performed half a dozen Shakespeare tragedies and is sitting down to learn the next one. Yeah. Yes, it's a whole stack of new words, but there is a rhythm to it. There is a shape to it. There is a structure to it that you are already familiar with, mm, that's which so means that you come already armed with you like if you like with an arsenal or with a vocabulary that you can immediately apply mm. and then it will depend very much on the complexity of the work um, 
there was a time in my life when I had to be very disciplined with budgeting study time. I, I think specifically of the time when I had a very small child in tow and um, study was basically relegated to between five and six, you know, before she <laughs> woke up in the morning. So mm. that, that was when you got your study done. So yes, my, my process will be, let's say, okay, let, let's take a work that I have conducted, but I haven't conducted in a long time. For example, week after next, Vorjak Ninth Symphony. I haven't done it in more than 20 years. Um, so restudying it, but yet, I mean, I know Dvorak's Ninth Symphony. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but first of all, I examine, I, I will get as much information. I have one or two good sources, librarians, who will do the research for me as to which editions are available, whether there's anything new on the market that's of interest, critical editions and so mm. on. So um, once I've selected my edition, and obviously in discussion with the orchestra who are going to perform it, whether they have that edition, whether they have limitations as to which editions they can perform. You know, once we've got the edition, I'll get the score and I'll sit down and I'll sort of scan, read the score and identify for myself immediately the issues. You know, in a scan, read of a score, you can very quickly get a sense of structure of of how the sonata form in the first movement functions, is there a rondo form in the slow movement, blah, blah, blah. Um, once you've done that and you've established um, sort of practical necessities such as uh, like in Brahms 4, the trombones don't call them for the first rehearsal because they don't play until the fourth movement. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, all that sort of thing. Um, then then it's the fun part mm. then it's the sitting down and and listening to the sounds in my head and deciding oh that's a really beautiful viola line i think i'd like to bring that forward a little bit more or or let's have a look at that wind structure we've got flutes oboes clarinets which is which should be the dominant color how much vibrato should there be in the sound you know i really go mm. into great detail in my head imagining the sound and imagining the color palette of the sound that I want to hear. And that's when the doodling comes in. That's <laughs> when I start scribbling in the score. I'll start scribbling vertical lines to indicate phrase lengths and phrase structures. I'll um, put red, a little red mark ahead of pizzicati or, or interesting accents in the timpani. Um, if there's something that from an old version, I'm used to it being in the this the bassoon, and actually in this version, it's in the horn. I'll make a little note of that. So it's so the score becomes like a kind of a a roadmap for mm. my for my brain, mm. um, and then I will listen to historic recordings. I won't listen to modern recordings, but I'll listen to historic recordings. Yeah. So for Dvorak, for example, I'll go back and listen to Dorati. I'll listen to Anshel if I can find it. I'll listen to Frickse. I'll mm. listen to Kubelik always. doesn't yes. matter what it is. If, if Fritz Reiner recorded it, I'll listen to that. Mm. I actually don't like his Dvorak very much, but it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's not that you're searching. It's not that you're looking for something to copy, but you're, I mean, these are people whose performances I would travel to hear now yeah. if they were alive. Mm. So, I listened to them, to the, the recordings they made, and you learn a great deal from that.
I mean, Pavel Yevi says in a is a film on the Berlin Philharmonic website, um, Philharmonic Concert Hall website, which says he says, you know, you'd be stupid not to listen to how these great conductors did them in the past. Did any of course? In the past. Yeah. It's so arrogant of any young conductor to think I don't need to listen to how Furt Wengler did it or Ansel did it yeah. or Reiner did it. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, so yeah. yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I mean an, another name, the Kurtesh, Isvan Kurtesh of Vorjak Symphonies. They're wonderful recordings, and yeah, I will often yeah. go to those as well. Yep. And you know, when I think I, as a as a young conductor, I travelled on an overnight bus to Munich to hear Chelabadaki conduct Brahms three and Brahms four. And frankly, <laughs> if Kleiber had been around then, I would have done the same. Yeah. I didn't have access to Kleiber, and frankly, when I was growing up in Australia, I didn't have access to any of these people in no. the in the seventies and eighties. So um, recordings are a tremendous resource. Yeah. yeah. Um. And yes, I also don't understand the arrogance that I sometimes hear is, oh, I, I won't listen to a recording because, you know, then I would, I, I, it would interfere with my interpretation. I think, well, how fragile is your grasp of the music if listening to how somebody else does it is going to upset how you decide to do it? <laughs> Absolutely, um, yes. <laughs> here, it here. might inform it. And that's all for the good. So yeah. that becomes an interesting part. And I usually find I'll start with about 10 recordings. And after a week, I will have whittled them down to two or three that I think are interesting. Yeah. And then I'll probably, if I've had done my timing right, then I will put it away because that process will have happened about 18 months before the concert. I'm with you in that. I do my nine to 12 months in advance and then it goes yeah. on a pile on my desk and then I'm doing the next thing nine or 12 months in advance and then I come back to it much later, much nearer the event and think, right, I'll open exactly. it up again. And you've, your roadmap, or the other word I use is a, bi a Bible or uh, there's a car manual called a Haynes car manual, which gives you all of the wiring <laughs> loops and, and how the brakes exactly. work. And it's exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's a, I mean, every now and then, if it's a work I've done many, many, many times and the score is full of scribbles, I might get another score and start again and mm. um, eliminate most of the scribbles. Yeah. But there's also something about the picture of a score. My memory is extremely photographic. So it is, and it is very visual. Mm. I'm not one of those people who can whistle the second subject of you know numerous movements from various symphonies but the moment I open the score it's like somebody's pushed a button on the hard drive and I can tell you where I conducted it when I conducted it who was playing mm. and in which bar so and so went wrong mm. you know and they will be memories that five minutes earlier I will not have known I had but they are triggered by the visual impulse of the score so yeah, that's kind of the process. And I'm Brilliant. also not somebody who learns, who, who sits down to determinedly memorize a score. Um, the memory happens or it doesn't happen. Um, mm. So I'm quite at ease about that. Usually I find if it's a symphony I've conducted a few times, uh, I'll then do it from memory. It's fine. But um, it's not something I actively do because I've seen too many of my 
colleagues in their younger days memorizing by phrase and bar lengths and bar, and that's not memorizing a score you've memorized the score when you know every tiny intimate detail of the score and you know what you want to do with every tiny intimate detail of that score mm. that's when it's memorized absolutely agree with you on that as well um there there have been moments when you know people have said to me oh surely you know that piece by from memory by now and the answer comes back from me well no i don't because it's you know there are certain things that i'm still discovering or yes i might well have conducted it 25 times but but then i i remember yeah. doing funnily enough three vorjak nines in a row in korea um and I, I, I'm not sure I'd even conducted the piece that often before. I mean, as a player, I played it once a year or twice a year for 22 years. Um, and on the third the third gig, I just decided, right, I'm just not going to open the score and see how far I get. And I got all the way to the yeah. end, and it was it had gone in, you know. But that was just yeah. that's how that piece works. But not every piece, um, definitely not. Another bit. Sorry, just one last thing. Yeah. Another big part of of my research. Anytime I'm doing a work for the first time or I'm, I'm re-studying it after an absence is I try to go back to the origins. So if there's mm. a facsimile of the handwritten score available, I, I have a growing collection of, of facsimiles of, of uh, manuscripts. Um, they are often incredibly informative in that they help you follow the thought process of the composer. Mm. Um, and the other thing is then, of course, I, I'm not somebody who reads biographies. I'm not a big fan of biographies. But if I'm doing something, I will certainly do the research, letters, the, the composer, correspondence of the composer at that particular time, what was happening in history around them at the particular, mm. that particular time, what was going on politically, um, what were the artistic movements that were surrounding them. I mean... I, when I learned Lulu, Berg's Lulu for the first time, yeah, I could open the score, I could read the notes, it, I could hear it in my head, but it didn't make any sense. Mm. Um, so it wasn't until I sat down and studied uh, in great detail the writers of the period, the artwork of the period, um, the politics of the period, um, then the music started to make sense because then I could see what it was born from. Mm. And I think that's incredibly important. About five or six episodes ago, um, I spoke to Marin Alsop and you and her obviously have much in common about, I called her a trailblazer and talked about, you know, she was the first female conductor to conduct to the last night, the proms and a female conductor is a phrase I hate using, but sort of have to use it. And other such things that she was the first in, you are no different. You were the first female conductor to work at the Vienna State Opera in 93, the first to conduct the Vienna Philharmonic in 05, but also the first to appear at Paris, um, Dresden, Staatskapelle, Berlin, Munich, uh, in opera houses. Firstly, did you know that you were the first? Um, and if you did, did that put any extra pressure on you before you worked there? Mm. Well, possibly the most, um, the most significant one would, would have been Vienna because, um, I first performed in Vienna at the Volksoper, mm. but at the, in 
December 1992. And at that time, Johan Hollander was the director of both the Volksoper and the Staatsoper. Mm. And I was, of course, the first woman who was conducting at the Volksoper. This is Vienna. It's 1992. And it was uh, Tales of Hoffmann with one rehearsal. And mm. In I went. That's kind of how you do it. And he came to see me in the interval and he said, "Um, I'm going to invite you to conduct at the Staatsoper, but I am not going to lose my position because of it. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's how much of a big deal it was in Vienna. We're talking about the period when uh, there were no women in the orchestra. The the Vienna, the Staatsopernorchester, is the Vienna Philharmonic in its opera house mode. And there were no women. There was a woman playing the harp, but she was sort of halfway behind the curtain and she was not an official member of the orchestra. So there had been some discussion amongst some members of the orchestra with the director because they were very concerned that this was some sort of political movement on his part to impose a woman conductor on them so they would have to take women musicians (laughs) into the orchestra. (laughs) Um, But by that stage, I already had the sort of stamp of approval from Barenboim. I was already conducting Wagner and Strauss in Berlin. And um, so that traveled. But this was the first performance was a Laboem with no rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. No orchestral rehearsal at all. Mm. There was a very young, completely unknown Romanian soprano singing Mimi, who became a great friend. Her name's Angela Gheorghiu. Yeah. <laughs> and so she was very young and, and very new on the scene at the time. Um, and I said, that's fine. No rehearsal, not a problem but I, I would like to meet the concert master. So I yeah. arranged to meet the concert master and we met and our conversation amounted to him saying, uh, it's nice to meet you. You know the opera, you've conducted it before. I said, yes, I've been conducting it in Berlin. Very good. You know the opera, we know the opera. I look forward to seeing you in the pit tomorrow night. That was the sum total of our conversation. <laughs> no discussion of beating patterns, no discussion of any of oh. that sort of thing. So anyway. One would think that was intimidating enough. Yes. But in fact, that wasn't what I found really quite daunting about the whole thing. What I found daunting about it was that I was a girl from Sydney who had somehow ended up conducting in the Vienna State Opera. Mm. Um, And I found that uh, particularly when I asked, when I'm conducting opera, I like having a small stool behind me to sort of perch on. So I'm not you know, too high up in the pit and so on. And I said this to the the orchestral guy who sets out the stands and things. He came to see me to ask me if I needed anything. Yeah. And I said, I need a little stool. And he said, ah, der Karajan sitz. There was a little bicycle seat thing yeah. that Karajan had used and they hadn't used it since his death so they were bringing that out for me well that of course completely freaked me out which was quite (laughs) good because um i was a little more freaked out by that than by the woman conductor thing Mm. and then but of course you know the thing is that that's all before the performance once you get into the pit it's all about the music Yeah. yeah i never think in the moment when i'm conducting i never think 
are they going to like me? Are they not going to like me? Oh my God, what am I doing here? I'm a woman. Why am I here? I mean, I'm thinking it's Bohem Act One, you know, yeah. and yeah. in you go. Mm. And I think, you know, when I, I have conversations with students, and fortunately these days, not so much, but maybe 10 years ago, the question I would hear from many young female students would be, how do I um, persuade them to play for me? How do I um, make myself authoritative? And I said, well, first of all, you stop asking yourself those questions <laughs> yeah, and you indeed. ask yourself, you ask yourself, how can I be better informed about this score? How can I better communicate what is in the score to my musicians? Focus on the job in hand. Don't focus on who you are. Mm. And uh, I think that that's probably the best advice for any conductor, male, female, tall, short, fat, thin, of, of any colored skin, yeah. of any uh, gender. Um, it's about the music. It's not about you. Mm. That's absolutely true. And being true to yourself, you know, it doesn't matter what, which of those, uh, how you fit into that Venn diagram of people you've just described. Be true to yourself, be true to the music. And, you know, people, orchestral musicians are pretty smart. They'll spot a faker, they'll spot somebody who's trying to be something they're not. And just be you. And uh, exactly as you said, the minute the music starts, it's the problem often comes with all of the guff and PR and hype and media stuff that happens beforehand, yeah. um, which was sort of what I was alluding to is that you know did that affect you in any way and seemingly by the time you put the you'd give the upbeat to Labo M and off you go it doesn't because you're just in the zone I hate to use that phrase but it's a, you know, it's a phrase that people use so um and your of advice it happened superb. all over again yeah yeah it happened all over again about four years later I was in Vienna to conduct Lohengrin mm. and um mm. Of course, the contract had existed for two and a half years or so. Like I said earlier, the Opera House's plan along went advanced. So this was March 97. We probably signed the contract in mid-95. And mid-95, none of us, not even myself, knew that by March 97, I was going to be eight months pregnant. <laughs> um, so we're still talking about the time where there are no women in the orchestra at all. And I haven't seen the orchestra for, year, for a year. And in I walked to rehearse Lohengrin and there was a lot of loud thunking as numerous jaws hit the floor. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was fit and healthy and I like to think that my being there and uh, my now 23-year-old daughter um, were part of the reason that following that performance of Lohengrin, that was the evening that the Vienna Philharmonic took the historic decision to allow women to join the orchestra. Mm. I like to think we had a little bit to do with it. Simone, it is that moment where we must traverse the 10 questions that everybody has had to answer since episode one. And you will be no different. So I start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the sound of the sea. I grew up next to the sea and, and I find it one of the most beautiful sounds ever. Mm. And what sound do I hate? Background music. 
<laughs> Muzak, yeah. <laughs> Muzak, yeah. yeah. If it's music, I want to listen to it. What I can't stand is that kind of, you know, when you're on the tram and somebody's got the headphones in and all <laughs> you can hear is the doof, doof and you can't hear any of the rest of it. Mm. Yeah, that drives me insane. I choose my hairdressers around the globe, depending on whether they play music in the background or not. <laughs> and if they don't, I'm much more likely to become a regular customer. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. Um, <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Um, if I was at home, I'd probably spend it exploring new recipes in the kitchen. I'm a oh, mad really? keen cook. Um, if I was traveling and I was somewhere there was a great art gallery then I'd be in the art gallery yeah. um I find and I would find a corner of the art gallery that was pretty empty uh so I'll try to find a quiet corner in a gallery even if it's not the most popular paintings or the the most famous paintings in that gallery just the chance to sit in solitude and quiet and examine or study or gaze at a work of art is really a great privilege yeah. and if that's not available and the sea is close by and the weather is halfway decent then you'll find me seated on the sand or on a beach um just staring at the moving water sounds good to me uh yeah i'll go and sit by a river and watch the boats go by it's um it's a nice way to spend Absolutely. an hour or so. um yeah going on uh, you can have more than one obviously um who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear Oh, difficult. And it very much depends on what the repertoire is. Yeah. I mean, my go-to people would be Klemperer, mm. Kyle Beart, Ooh. Uh, then, of course, Fritz Reiner, yeah. George Sell, mm. Anchel Frixay. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole stack of them. I I I'm fascinated. And if we're talking slightly more recent, I would always listen to Macaris, Heitink, Boulez. I I hardly need to listen to Baron Boehm's recordings because I worked so closely with him for so long. I know most of them anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I've forgotten so many people who. Are, you know, I think. Curiously enough, I think Abado and Muti are both often uh, incorrectly overlooked in a lot of repertoire outside their sort of, you know, standard repertoire. Yes. I, I find them both fascinating in the symphonic repertoire quite and quite extensive range of repertoire. Mm. Um, Azawa and Ormandy, of course. Yes. I mean... Well, you, you mentioned Azawa and Muti, who are basically still current conductors. So let's ask question five, which is, and who would be favourite current conductors? Again, would that be repertoire-led decisions of yours? It would be very repertoire-led. I mean, doesn't matter what it is, I would always, Baron Boehm is right up there because I just am fascinated by how he thinks musically. Here is somebody who utterly believes in sound and phrasing and structure. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that is my philosophy as well. Um, Muti, Abado, um, Boulez is sadly no longer with us. Heitink is still with us. Yeah. Um, 
oh lord who have i forgotten i've forgotten lots of people but um well it's all right it's all right uh, daniel harding said that this question was cruel uh and other people have said oh this is the hardest <laughs> question of all of them um because you know it, it can be repertoire led but also um it's very difficult for us conductors to actually go and see other conductors working it's only if you yeah. go a night off in a city and, and a visiting orchestra is touring or something you might be we might be able to bump into a, a colleague of ours or go and watch them yeah. actually work you know it's it's only through recordings isn't it that we get to know people yeah. um and work. the problem is often um if you're relatively well known in the industry um guaranteed some enthusiastic member of the audience is going to stop you at the end of the concert that they've seen you sitting in the audience for and saying, and what did you think? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. you've got to be pretty sure before you go that you're going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's so true. <laughs> what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? The hardest work technically mm. that I have ever conducted would be Schoenberg's Erwartung. Oh, yes. Because it is extremely complex, but also um, if you're going to do the work justice, it is a spectacular soundscape and requires the same kind of beauty of sound that you would expect from Mahler and Strauss. I mean, mm. he was writing it for the same musicians. Yeah. Um, very, very difficult score. The most difficult emotionally, I would say, um, is Tristan and Isolde. Mm. Whenever I'm conducting Tristan, I mean, I adore it. If if you said to me today, you can only conduct one opera from the rest for the rest of your life, what is it going to be? Tristan, mm. hands down, no discussion, no time to think about it. That being said for two weeks before I conduct the piece and for at least a month afterwards, I have the most extraordinary and intense dreams. Mm -hmm. It plunges me into euphoria one moment and deepest depression the next. Um, I find it emotionally an extremely difficult work to deal with. Mm. And um, musically, Beethoven fifth. <laughs> that that piece has appeared before but actually sometimes because of the technical challenges of just starting it um, no it's got but, nothing I mean, to do with the technical challenges i mean you you do know that you know the lovely story about the opening of boheme mm -hmm. because the boheme opens bum 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 yes and there's a story that puccini got the idea of how of that rhythm when he heard a um sort of sub quality orchestra in Italy, a regional orchestra in Italy, trying to rehearse the opening of Beethoven five. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. I did I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> but uh, no, it's not it's not the technical difficulty. It's simply what is it you want to say with those first four bars? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have been conducting the piece for 30 years and I still don't really have a satisfactory answer to that. And when I came to that conclusion about 15 years ago, I decided to put the symphony away <laughs> and to come back to it when I felt I was ready to address that question again. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? My knitting. Oh, you're a knitter. I'm a knitter. I'm yeah. an absolutely passionate knitter. It's something I did as a teenager mm. and then dropped altogether in my early 20s. 
And when my dad passed away five years ago, almost exactly, it was five years ago yesterday, um, that left mum and me together and we never had a great deal in common, but she had taught me how to knit. Mm. And so I picked it up again and discovered that which every knitter has been talking about for the last 20 years, that um, it, it is anchoring and the, just the wonderful sensation of creating something, the tactile mm. sense. Um, I find it, it, is, it is absolutely essential to me now in my downtime. Mm. I'll spend at least an hour knitting and I might be listening to something or listening to a book or watching something or, or just staring out the window at the lights in Tokyo. Um, but having something and watching it grow in my hands, I find immensely rewarding. Brilliant. I'm, I remember my grandmother was, you know, she would be almost constantly knitting during the day and she'd be holding conversations with you or watching the snooker on the telly or, um, and wasn't yeah. uh, Sir Colin Davis, he was a knitter as well, wasn't he? I think he yeah. used, used it as a, yes. a great way of, of sort of clearing the mind and downtime. So it's fantastic. There's a, um, a wool shop in Zurich, quite close to the Opera House. And it's run by a woman who used to play in the opera orchestra. Ah. And there's a sign over the counter that says, Wer strickt, spart sich den Psychiater, which translates as, if you knit, you won't need a psychiatrist. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Wonderful. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? The title of address. Mm. I don't feel comfortable being addressed as maestro. Mm. And maestra is incorrect. May I use this platform, please, <laughs> to get on my soapbox? <laughs> get, on, yeah, get on your high horse now. <laughs> the Italians fall over themselves laughing when they hear us trying to be politically correct and calling the new generation of women conductors maestra, yeah. because in Italy, a maestra is very specifically a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> well, there we are. So, and so they think it's terribly funny. When I conduct in Italy, I am Madama il maestro. Mm. So it's the masculine term with Madama in the front. Just think about it in French. You're hardly going to call the conductor the maîtresse, are you? Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's maître, Madame le maître. Mm. And, um, but I also, I, I feel uneasy when someone uses the word maestro because I think maybe by the time you got to 75, you're worthy of that title. I'm just not sure any of us younger than that are really worth that honorific. It was an answer I gave in episode one of this podcast when I did a little taster for people to discover what it was all going to be about. Um, I can't remember when uh, in episode 50, I can't remember whether I gave the same answer, but I loathe the word, especially here in the UK, Whenever anybody calls you maestro, I always feel that they're being sarcastic, um, or they're, yes. they're, deep, <laughs> they're gently taking the piss by calling you maestro. And especially when yeah. somebody called me Mikestro as well, which I loathed, <laughs> absolutely loathed. Um, so yeah, and and we were we were discussing before I press record about you know how some languages now 
are getting rid of the dirigentin, for instance, in German, where dirigent is the masculine form, and dirigentin is the female form. And it, and it can, again, it can be used in a way that, you know, that, that is, can be quite demeaning by the way that it, the, the inflection of the word, can't it? They've come up, some places have come up with a very elegant alternative for that in Germany now, which is just giving the name and then adding the, the, um, the description musikalische Leitung. Yes. Musical direction or yeah. musical leader, um, mm. which I find quite elegant. Mm. The only place it doesn't bother me so much is in the States because it seems to be that it's just drilled into... Yeah. American musicians from an early age that that's what you call the conductor mm. and they seem to do it without any hint of irony or whatever I even remember having a, a funny discussion with one of the Met musicians once it's the it was the job of the timpanist to collect the conductor from the dressing room and accompany them to the door of the pit mm. because the timpani had to get into his position after the conductor had entered. <laughs> right. So that was his job. And this young guy was playing the temps and he, we'd been doing this for like a month and a half uh, for eight performances or 10 performances or something. And finally I said to him, you know, please, we've, we've, we've known one another for a couple of months. You don't have to call me maestro. You can call me Simone. And he said, sure, maestro, anything you say. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, there you are. It is ingrained in some cultures. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, let's get, please get rid of it. Stop it now. Um, yep. <laughs> number nine, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Would I like to attempt or would I come back and do it in my next life? Uh, well, they're sort of both the same thing. But yeah, I mean, any job that you thought, oh, do you know what, if I hadn't have been in music at all, I would oh. have loved to have been a dot, 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 dot. Yeah. Um, well, if I hadn't gone into music, I probably would have gone into law mm. because I'm fascinated by the English language and by its finesse and precision. Mm. And I probably would have gone into law and probably from the academic side of things. Mm. Um, but in fact, what fascinates me more and more now, and I think, well, in my next life, that's what I want to do, is I would like to be a neurological researcher into how the memory functions. Mm, mm. I'm fascinated in how the memory functions, both in terms of what we do, you know, muscle memory as opposed to conscious memory, but also in connection with linguistics and knowledge. I mean, how is it that our passive memory is so much bigger than our active memory? What can one do to assist accessing the passive memory um these are things that fascinate me and i so i i think yes a neurological research would have been interesting if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink oh well a drink would be easy it would be a really good quality um west australian cabernet mm. Um, probably a cab sav mix about 20 years old from one of the older estates there on the Margaret river. That would be the drink, the food <laughs> difficult. I really, I love food. Mm. I mean, this is the food is my vice. <laughs> I just love it. Ditto. And in yeah. fact, <laughs> yeah, 
Leonard Slatkin and I met one another across a dining table oh, yes. um, on Hayman Island on the Australian Barrier Reef um, <laughs> in this lovely holiday resort where you could sign up to be at the chef's table in the kitchen and watch the meals being prepared. Yeah. And we had one of those very silly conversations where you, you don't know the person next to you or across the table. Right. My husband was with me, his wife was with him. And you start talking and you're saying, oh, this nice, you know, and, and are you here on holidays? And where do you usually, oh, what do you do? And well, I'm a musician. Well, I'm a musician. Um, what do you play? Well, I'm a conductor. Well, yeah, so am I. <laughs> and of course, then about four questions in, then we discovered, of course, who we were and that yes. we knew one another very well um, reputation and colleagues and places. So we just never met. So our link was food. Immediately. Yeah. I still haven't answered your question. <laughs> if I was completely honest, I would probably say, have to say, uh, an excellent, a, a really good duck liver pate. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm, that's one of life's, and especially with red wine, that would be beautiful. Yeah. With toast, yeah. some little French with toast. With very thin toast. Yeah. yeah. My husband makes a terrific chicken and pate uh, terrine which I'm thinking with, with cherries in it uh, and which I'm thinking of very fondly now. And it's very sad that he and the Tarina are both on the other side of the globe. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it sounds like we could, we could just keep expanding these, re these recipes from pate to a terrine to, you know, and could just keep going because food is yep. very much something I love. Uh, I've loved the last hour and a half with various technical glitches chatting to you. It's been a real joy. Um, good luck with the next three days of, of isolation in your hotel. And after all of this is over, I hope to, we could sit down over a glass of Australian red wine and have another chat. That would be lovely. Are you still in Birmingham? I'm still in Birmingham. Very good. Well, I, I do pop up to Birmingham every now and then because, as I said, my daughter's there. Oh, well, in that case, yeah, next time, give me a shout and we'll we'll have a drink, a glass of wine together. Will do. Okay, it's been very pleasant talking to you. It's been really most enjoyable. Thank you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an American conductor who's had a long and distinguished career. He started out studying composition with Messian, and then went on to have positions with orchestras in the US, Belgium and Germany, and is now teaching back home in the US at the New England Conservatory in Boston. Until then, bye bye!